only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 begins with an amazing statement. Be imitators of God. The Greek word is the word we get for mimic. And I always think of mimic uh, animal mimicry when I think of that word. And animals usually are mimicking for one of two reasons. One is for protection, save their hide, right? Blend in so the predators don't find them. So hopefully, and and this has been shown when moths uh, migrate to areas where uh, there's dark surfaces, guess which ones are the first to go? It's the light moths. And so eventually you end up with darker moths in that area because they're the ones that survive. And uh, the same way if they move to a different area. So mimicry in that uh, way protects animals. And another way, of course, that they, a reason they mimic is to uh, kill something, like the anglerfish at the bottom, looking like the rocks. You know, there's a little worm there, and, but it's not really rock, and it's not really a worm. It's a fish that's going to eat you. Um, we mimic God, interestingly, for the benefit of others, ultimately. We're not trying to save our skin. We're not trying to eat something. We're trying to give ourselves away to somebody. We're trying to be like God who actually gave his own son. So to mimic God is a call to radical uh, discipleship and, and a radical gifting of ourselves to everything around us, to use ourselves for others. So very different form uh, of mimicry. But this, this mimicking God uh, uh, is imitating him is challenging, is it not? I mean... It's one thing to say, I'm going to try to be like the guy that lost 30 pounds, uh, which I need to be like that guy that lost 30 pounds. Um, but another thing to say, I'm going to be like that guy that I saw on TV in the Olympics that did an iron cross. You're just kind of looking at me and say, it ain't going to happen, dude. You, uh, you can't even get up and hang on those rings probably, you know, much less do an iron cross. But that's kind of what it's like to say, imitate God. You know, I mean, we think about it, the Iron Cross deal is nothing compared to that. Nothing. That a human being is somehow going to be like this God. Talk about challenging. Talk about shooting for the stars. Talk about something to catch up the whole of your life to somehow imitate and be like God himself. And what's so wonderful about that is it's really a recall to our original purpose because we're made in his image and we're really made with this originally with this glorious capacity yes indeed to be like God yes indeed to be these originally perfect little imitations of him perfect representations of him on earth where his real and majesty would show itself through the way human beings would relate to one another and to their world and one day that'll be fully restored fully restored so as impossible as it seems, it really is going to happen. 
And, and we can progress toward that. We have the hope that this is not in vain that we learn to be like Him and more and more manifest Him because one day this will be perfected, however frustrating it may be in, in times here. So tremendously challenging but dramatic. Dramatic. It's kind of like a group of trees in the fall and they all have lost their leaves except this one guy and his are just bright orange and red and yellow. You know, and he's just kind of, what can I say? You know, <laughs> as you look at all the other trees. Now, hopefully we're not going to say that as we imitate God, right? But um, I'm just personifying that tree, that's all, getting carried away. But, um, or in a, another group of trees in the spring, here, here's one that just pops out because of its beautiful white or pink, you know, uh, flora. So just amazing uh, fa- fauna, actually, not flora. Um, <clears throat> so here is... A glorious thing that happens, a dramatic thing that we begin to look like God. And it's a dramatic thing when somebody begins to look like God. It's not a small thing. It, it, it means actions in certain cases and, and love in certain cases where no one would have thought, no one could have imagined that you would act like you did then with such patience, such grace, such forgiveness, such kindness, such sacrifice. What in the world? Imitator of God. There you go. There's the pink blooms. There, there are the orange leaves standing out. And we don't do it for our glory, but we, it's a glorious thing because we get to be like God and show forth His glory. So he begins here being imitators of God. But look at this motivation as beloved children. As beloved children. Now that doesn't mean... You know, it doesn't say as severely, harshly disciplined children, as abandoned children, as children of a father who uh, can't stand the sight of us, a a father who is severe with us, a father who is disconnected uh, from us, who pays us no attention. But this is indeed the father who regards us as his beloved. You, you, you'd like to imitate a God like that. It, it, just the personal relationship causes you to want to follow and be like this daddy who regards you as his beloved. That itself draws us to him, that we would be his, his beloved. And it's interesting that very word is used of Christ himself. At the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, when Jesus was changed to a lightning-like appearance before the disciples, the same voice, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's used again in uh, Matthew 12 when he's quoting. Uh, the, Matthew actually is quoting the passage in Isaiah where it says, I will send my servant, my beloved speaking of Christ. And then Christ himself in his parable in Mark chapter 12 uh, says, you know, telling that parable about the guy who planted the vineyard and he put these uh, tenants in charge of it. And it's a picture of, of Yahweh uh, creating Israel and putting the leaders in charge of it, you know, spiritual and political leaders in charge of it. And as the parable goes, he says, so it came time for the fruit and he sent his uh, servant, and they beat up his servant. Then he sent another, another servant and another, and some they beat up and some they killed. And finally he says, I will send them my beloved son. He uses that word again. 
Um, here's Jesus knowing he is his father's beloved son. Well, isn't it amazing that you think of God calling his own son, my beloved, and then he takes you and me and he says, and hey, y'all, come over here. <laughs> Join my son. Be my beloved. Be my beloved forever. That's what I call you. That's what I declare to you. And you can't declare otherwise. We like to declare otherwise. You know, we, we like in our self-pity. Uh, we like to doubt his love. We like to read our circumstances in a way that justifies the fact that we might not be so faithful or trusting or at peace because maybe I'm really not his beloved, but no, you are his beloved. And it has a glorious responsibility of happiness. <laughs> A glorious responsibility of peace. A glorious responsibility that you can rest in that love and spend yourself for other people because you're His beloved. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And this love that He has here in Ephesians has been spoken of in such amazing ways. If you back up to chapter 1 we see that the root of everything He's done for us is His love. He says in Ephesians 1, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons. And then He goes on to say, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We've obtained an inheritance. We came to know Him through the gospel. But it all came from this. In love He planned to have you as His own. That's the root. And that love continues to be described in chapter 2 when he tells how we were dead, but we were brought and, and raised. And what was the motivation? What was behind that? Because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we hated him, he raised us up. He took dead, hating people and raised them up to new life. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. That began before time. And then it's not only the root, you might say the instrument by which this is why he does this. Uh, it's also, it becomes our, uh, our ob object forever. In chapter 3, so you get chapter 1, 2, 3. 3, he says that his spirit would work in our hearts, verses uh, 14 and following. Uh, that we would be strengthened with power, ultimately for what purpose? In verse 18 and 19, to know the love of Christ, the height and breadth and length and, and depth of it that surpasses knowledge. So it becomes uh, kind of the amphitheater uh, of God. In this amphitheater, we, we, we seek to trace out the uh, unending mountain ranges and valleys and, and streams and oceans of this love. And it says that as we explore and discover and come into the awe and joy and satisfaction of this love, we'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. This fullness must mean in part that we'll be made like Him. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be made like that love that we so admire and know because you become what you study, you become what you know in that way. And no surprise then that having talked about the love of God that, that 
planned the love of God that drew and the love of God that now is our total object that in chapter 4 when he begins to talk about the outworking of this salvation of God, he begins by saying, walk in a manner worthy of this calling with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. No surprise, right? Called, uh, planned in love, called in love, the focus of love in God. And so love one another, love one another. So that the culmination of this little section, first section in Ephesians 4 and verse 16, uh, he, he says the result of God putting us together as a body and each one of us being used in each other's life, he says this finally will cause the body to grow so that it builds itself up in what? Let's all say it. Love, right. So this is a piece, obviously, with the whole course of Ephesians that he would tell us to be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, He has talked about this love. And then the final uh, thing he says is walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ has loved us. And I'd like to explore that just a bit with you to think about uh, the ways or the condition in which Christ loved us. I think that's the real challenge for us is the varying conditions in which we find ourselves and and loving in the midst of those conditions, those situations. And we're to love Christ, I mean to love uh, uh, one another as Christ has loved us, to walk in love as He walked in love. And so I'd like to take that look at it. And first of all, that he loved us as he himself was bearing injustice. That's the hardest, hardest time to love. When you're being treated unfairly, uh, when you're being deprived or persecuted or uh, being treated without justice, that you continue to do good and to love in the midst of that. Because that's when retaliation breaks out, tends to break out. And so later in First Peter, Peter's talking to slaves who are being treated unfairly. And he says, if when you're treated unfairly, you then, you then do good. And then you love. Then you do good to your masters and others. You know what? You're starting to look like Jesus then. Because that's what he did. Because when he was reviled, Peter said, he didn't revile in return. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted his cause to God with that freedom of God's sovereignty. And God would handle everything. He continued to love. And he could say, um, forgive those they forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And later, Peter applies this to those in persecution, and he says, continue to entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Entrusting yourself to a faithful creator, continue to do good, which is to say, love. Well, that's how Christ has loved us. In the midst of the most radical, horrible injustice and unfairness and deprivation, He continued to love. And bear in mind, if he didn't continue to love, he wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. He wouldn't have been well-pleasing to his father. But he perfectly showed the father's 
infinite goodness and infinite love by at the point of that deprivation and injustice showing love. That's one way that we would imitate Christ and walk in love as Christ has loved us. And as a part of that, we would endure. You know, the, the, the language of First Peter is entrusting yourself to him who, who judges justly, judges righteously. So there's a future orientation, isn't it? Isn't there? There's this sense of, I can commit this whole arena, this whole situation to the final uh, dealing of God. No matter what I've lost, no matter what's happened to me, God will more than make it up. He will enrich and astound me in that last day for how He will supply all of my needs and therefore it leaves me free to give myself away. I don't have to uh, guard myself in that sense. I don't have to strike out for what's mine and all I can give to, in this situation that's so difficult. Because Jesus, we're told in Romans 12, uh, for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then the writer of Hebrews says that we're to walk or run the race even as Jesus has been set before us as our example to run the race. So, in injustice and unfairness and deprivation, and this doesn't justify, you know, abuse in a marriage or, or you know, physical uh, issues outside of the, perhaps when a, a, a Christian is being persecuted. Those are situations, of course, but it doesn't justify it in other situations. So, I just want to make that clear. Um, but, secondly, uh, maybe it would be called in the midst of dread or stress, or pressure. And I'm thinking of Christ's uh, love for us in the garden. Because there in the garden, it was the pure, unadulterated dread of what he was about to face that we read in, in Luke himself that, that caused you know, his blood vessels to break, his capillaries apparently to, to break in some way so that blood seeped through his forehead. Um, we can't conceive what Christ knew of what he was going to face in terms of the Father's judgment. Being the God-man, he knew something of the infinite severity of that. And so whatever we know about pressure, whatever we know about dread, about something coming down the pike that just consumes us, this is what was happening to Christ in a way that we can't even fathom. But in the midst of that dread, of that that pressure, that horrible, unyielding stress and the, and the future agony that he was going to face, he still ministered to his disciples, went back three times urging them to stay awake, urging them on to, to be right with God, to continue to please God and love God, to further their spiritual good. He repaired the ear uh, uh, that Peter cut off. You, you think he might at that point, look, I'll do you better. I'm going to cut all your ears off. You know, <laughs> like why wasn't he just saying, you know, revengeful, saying, you, you think you're so great coming to hear a little army. Let me show you something. 10,000 angels, you know, as he said he could do. But in the midst of all this, the gentleness and the love and the, the wisdom and the, the self-control that he had in the midst of this agony. And usually when we're facing, you know, serious issues, we think this is the, this is the basis on which I can... Uh, 
I can justify and excuse myself for how I treat my wife or husband or someone else. Well, you know, I'm under pressure and got all this stuff going. Oh, that's not it. It's just sin. You know, this may be the occasion to bring out my sin, to manifest how sinful I am. That's what it is. Just showing there's the real Darwin coming out. It's not fake Darwin. This is Darwin coming out. In the midst so, uh, of, of dread, in the midst of injustice, um, in the midst of physical pain on the cross, that's another time. It's so difficult, isn't it, to care for others when it just seems like we want to implode at that point. Um, and so on the cross itself, we know that he uh, entrusted his mother to his uh, disciple, John, and we know that he brought about the salvation of this thief on the cross, had mercy and kindness to him. He pronounced forgiveness on those around him. He, he was even there and then under the judgment of the Father in the pain, bitter, horrible pain of the cross, struggling to keep himself alive by pushing up and all the horrible pain of the lacerations, etc. Uh, he was concerned about others around him. Loving people. And so walk in love as Christ loved us. And then, fourthly, he loved us in the midst of abandonment. That's probably the hardest in some ways. When you feel abandoned, he knew himself to be abandoned. He didn't just feel it. He knew at that point that every disciple he had cared more about saving their skin than they did him. That was clear. He, he suddenly, in their minds, became the worst, uh, you know, cost. They, they, he wasn't valuable. In fact, he was something to be gotten rid of, you know. And in the midst of this abandonment, in the midst of every abandonment, even... And it was in a certain sense, of course, the abandonment of the Father. My, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even as the Spirit, we read in Hebrews, was sustaining him to give himself away. I mean, it's hard to understand all that's going on with the Trinity. But still, this utter abandonment, and in the midst of abandonment. In fact, that made, in a sense, the the perfection of his suffering more perfect in terms of standing in our place because that's what sin ultimately deserves is that we finally be utterly abandoned in hell. And so he suffered this abandonment. The very act of suffering that abandonment was an act of love. And then he loved us in the midst of that abandonment. And that's the time where we, 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 we think... Well, if they haven't done this for me, if she's not going to say something to me, if, if this is the way that church is going to treat me, or this is the way that person, all of these are the same kind of issues that we think, if, if I'm treated this way, I'm not going to serve in return. I'm not going to love in return. And it happens with husbands and wives. It happens with brothers and sisters. It happens with family members. It happens in the church. It happens with a neighbor. Happens with the guy in the car in front of you that just pulled in front of you. That simple. Well, if he thinks, you know. 
And so we think about this command as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And, and his act was our shelter. His act was the refuge into which we run. His act was an offering and sacrifice we never could have made, and he did it on our behalf. And he did it only for us because there was no, he didn't need anything. He didn't need any of this. It was purely, purely for us that he acted in this way, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of physical pain, in the midst of dread, in the midst of abandonment. He loved. And we're to walk in love. And obviously this tells us, I have no resources for this. I have no capacity for this. This is, I can't even register this hardly in my mind of how I could be this kind of person and love in this way. Be encouraged, as I've already said in Hebrews 9.14, it says he offered himself up by the eternal spirit. Be encouraged that even the Son of God was empowered by the Spirit to do his ministry and to love in the way he loved. Even a perfect man was, was taken up by God himself and enabled by the Spirit to love in this way. And so, for this whole context is one of, if, if you know Ephesians, it's the practical section. The practical section where that tells us very everyday things that we must do in terms of sexual purity, in terms of lying, in terms of the way we speak to one another, in terms of stealing, etc. But the root of it all, the root of it is, in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. He doesn't just say, okay, be like God. He says, here's the starting point. You were lost in the futility of your mind. You were darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that was in you, Darwin. But now in Christ, you are a new self. You have a new self. You are a new self in Christ. You are filled with the Spirit and you now put on this new self that has been created after the likeness of God. It's a whole new ball game with whole new capacity in ways that far stretch far beyond anything a human being could be or do because God has taken hold of our life and, and He has created us anew to be after His likeness. That's the backdrop for be imitators. We're created in His likeness. And so after this verse, in verse 8, you kind of have a recap of that idea. For at one time you were darkness, not just in the darkness, okay? You were one of the producers of the darkness, Darwin, okay? You, you were a factory along with everyone else. You helped belched out the toxic fumes of darkness and sin. You were of the darkness, but now, just as dramatically... Not just that you're among the light or you're next. You are light in the Lord. It's dramatic over here to say you were darkness. <laughs> then he says you are light in the Lord. And so in those contexts you see of you've been created after the likeness of God. You are darkness. Yes, but you're light. It's in that context that he can say be imitators of God. Walk in love as, as Christ has loved us. 
And of course, later in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And it's because of that filling of the Spirit that he can go on to say, we're addressing one another with spiritual songs. We're giving thanks. We're submitting to one another. Wives are submitting to husbands. Husbands are loving wives. Children are obeying parents, slaves and masters, etc. Why? It's the Spirit of God that's taken hold of us. We were darkness, now we're light. We were darkened in our understanding, now we're renewed in the spirit of our minds. We can put on the new self. And this brings a glory to us that reminded me of Isaiah 4. It's one of my favorite passages. It's a prophetic statement of what will happen in the final day. And it, it uses the language of the wilderness, okay? uses the metaphor of the wilderness. But it means something far greater as we form the new people of God in the new age to come of the Spirit which we're in. And it says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion. We're Mount Zion, okay? The whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. That's us. That's us. This community that having been transformed by the love of God, having new selves, and and now we're light, we're this place where the glory of God is shining over us. And isn't it interesting? Last text, hang with me. Isn't it interesting in 1 Peter 4, as he's talking about this same context where he says, continue to do good in the midst of persecution, verse 19, earlier, he says, when you're sharing Christ's sufferings, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, and he talks about it, if you're living out the love of Christ, okay, as you're living out the love of Christ, and you do this in the midst of these things, injustice, uh, uh, abandonment, physical pain, uh, dread, etc. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that wonderful? So it, it makes me think of that Isaiah passage. The glory of God, the glory of the spirit rests upon you there in that prison when because of the love of Christ you are, you are abandoned and nobody even knows you're there. But let me tell you, the canopy of God is over you there because you're a lover of God and you're manifesting His love. That's our great privilege. That's our dramatic, challenging, glorious privilege to be like God. Let us pray. Lord, we honor you and praise you that you have loved us as you have in Christ Jesus. We lift you up, Lord, for your goodness and greatness in giving us the Lord Jesus, in loving us before the foundation of the world, loving us and so drawing us and uh, raising us up because of the great love with which you loved us, and then, Lord, allowing us to be in this amphitheater of your glory in which we are called to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then wonder of wonders to be continually conformed to that love. 
Oh, Lord, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?